Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Yo, I'm comfortable talking to Mark Alford. He don't make me feel like I gotta kneel at a dark altar. His colleagues are cool, things are jolly and smooth. Anything else, it'll be part stupid and part awkward. Craig Glazer was an Eagle Scout who wanted to be a gunslinger. When he got out of prison for money laundering, he opened a comedy club and wrote a book about his life that's now being made into a movie. Craig got comfortable with me in his townhouse outside of Kansas City. I wanted to know, Craig, how did you end up the king of Sting? You know, backing up, because I grew up in kind of that rock and roll hippie era of the late 60s, which was the beginning of marijuana and LSD, the Beatles, the Doors, Rolling Stones. You know, we went through the transition of short hair to long hair and the tight blue jeans and bell bottoms that I grew up with and smoking weed and all that. And then we were slowly drifting in the 70s into the disco era, which was, I said Saturday Night Fever was kind of presented by movies like that, where dancing became uh, more of an art form than that kind of hippie free-for-all and the long hair became shorter the clothing attire finally got off bell bottoms and tight pants to uh you know a little bit more dressed up silk shirts hair combed back so it was a transition but it was still go to bars that's where you meet girls and get phone numbers you know you grew up in this era as well friday night was meet the new chick saturday was take out the girls you met on Friday and try and sleep with them if you were <laughs> advanced. You know, there wasn't going to be dinner and a movie every weekend. But uh, sad to say, when you sit the plaza, that era's gone. You know, today, young people, because baby boomers and even Gen Xers, you know, kind of late 30s to 50s and 60s, a lot of uh, the generation I grew up in, as you did, is unaware of this big change. There are really no nightclubs to speak of, very few. Dancing for... Uh, the non-urban crowd is kind of over with. And uh, they, you know, the young people uh, meet girls online, you know, Facebook, uh, on social apps. And uh, they don't go. The, the, uh, the speaking at a bar to a girl and being cool and having all that language and jargon and what you wore and how your hair looked is over. You know, now they meet girls at Starbucks for their first date. Or have them come over and they order a pizza and watch Shark Tank. I mean, I don't know what they do, but so how's that affected your business? Because you just opened, you've had a comedy club for how many years? Well, I opened Stanford's as an adult teenager in the uh, mid '70s in Westport. But you were how old? Nineteen. Yeah. Well, I was living here and then uh, just coming back from Arizona, actually. Yeah. And uh, my dad and I opened it with my brothers, and uh, yeah, and that was in the mid '70s. And we didn't start comedy till 1980. I started it in what was called the Treehouse, which was a little room above the very busy restaurant. Stanford's in Westport, which is what made Westport launched what Westport is today, which is our number one entertainment center. I know Power and Light likes to pretend they are, but they're not. Westport will outlive everybody. It just, you know, with all they've gone through, they just, they're like Sherbono. Even after nuclear <laughs> war, there'll be roaches, Sherbono, and Westport, you know? <laughs> 
it, you just can't kill it off with all the, oh, it's crime ridden, there's black people are killing everyone, uh, the police, and no, my kids won't go there. It's malarkey. It's still on any given night, the busiest bar area in the Midwest. Though it's not packed on weekdays, there's people there. You mentioned the plaza, it's pretty dead. Well, plaza is now shopping, early evening, uh, dinner. But the plaza is not what it used to be. No. You don't have halls. No. You don't have... Well, I was thinking nightlife. Yeah. Nightlife's completely gone. There's no... When I grew up, all the nightclubs were down there, like Dirty Sally's. Even Houlihan's, the restaurant, right. was a big pickup bar. I don't know. Did, when did I you was, come here? I came here in 98, 20 years ago. Well, that was kind of past. Yeah. The scene was dying, but it kind of ended with... Uh, what was the last big uh, bar or nightclub down there? Uh, well, the big one was Bebas, which was a private club ranked in the top 10 nightclubs in America by Playboy really? Magazine. I think it was number three, gorgeous. But that was the era of the early to mid 80s of private clubs, right. where you would join a club for $100,000 and you had to be on the membership to get in. And it was just kind of cool that you remember they didn't give you anything, but very flashy, very upscale. That doesn't exist either. There are very few dance clubs in the city anywhere. So why would you open and continue in the comedy business then? Because I'm stupid. <laughs> Because you were out at the by the Speedway, right. and now you've moved back to downtown, right? I've been in Kansas City, Missouri since 2003 when we had Stanford's then Johnny Dares, which we also yeah. owned. And um, so it's been almost 20 years. And there's been no comedy club in Kansas City, Missouri ever since. You know, uh, the improv is in North Kansas City. Right. So we're the first comedy club back there since we left in 03, I think. Why? Uh, you know, I'm just kind of addicted to it. And I knew uh, we're down on 813 Walnut, 8th and Walnut, just below Power and Light, kind of between P&L and what used to be River Key, what they mm -hmm. call now River Market, yeah. whatever they call it. And it's, it's, a, it's a growing area, as we all know. A lot of kids moving down there a to lot, live. Well, the, you know, I hear that. Most people I meet down there are not from here. They're young people uh, transplanted from Lincoln, Nebraska, Oklahoma City, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and they've been brought here. They're in their 20s. And it's exciting because to them, this is New York or mm -hmm. Chicago. Yet they're not Hoosiers. They're from smaller versions of Kansas City. And they've been brought here to be in the financial industry. They're working at Bank of America. They're working at um, Block Realty. Wherever. They're, they're in the that industry. And real estate people, bank people, um, uh, stock market people, um, uh, money market people. And they're young, and they're aggressive, and they're the ones renting the apartments and buying the condos downtown. Hold on just a second. So these kids are moving here from places that are... They're a little smaller. Yeah, a little but, smaller, but, but and they think it's a big city. Well, the places they're coming from to here are still kind of hip, like Omaha and Lincoln, mm -hmm. Lincoln, Nebraska, and Oklahoma City. But they don't have the physical structure and size of Kansas. You know, Kansas City's a big city physically, though not with population. In our downtown, though, it's still a little dreary. I mean, you know, I have a place down there, and I chose not to move down there, but to live on the plaza, which is a little bit more brighter and, and more modern. I'm still not sold on the downtown living because those streets are crazy, the parking's crazy. You know, you still only have a couple of grocery stores. There's no quick trips. It's got It's got some things it needs to add but but it's it's vibrant during the day and you see a lot of people walking around it you know and there's about 15 we're basically a neighborhood bar at 813 what's called stanford's 813 at 813 walnut we took over a, a neighborhood bar that was there called tiger tail 
what we did is we added comedy. It's a small comedy room. It just seats 100. But then behind it, we have a pool and video room. It's kind of like my Westport place back in the 80s, 90s, and beyond, but smaller. And then late at night, it's a nightclub. We're open till 3 in the morning. All the comedy clubs I had in Kansas, out at Overland Park, uh, the one at Hooters, and the one you mentioned, Legends, which was a Village West, um, were just comedy clubs. They were not nightclubs. And after comedy, we really didn't stay there. I mean, thank God I got to go home and go to bed between 9 and 11. <laughs> But now we have a three in the morning nightclub and, um, you know, we're appealing to kind of the audience that lives down there younger, uh, though we get a lot of, I already see a lot of middle-aged people playing pool and hanging out with the younger audience. The music of today, which is a little bit more rap and hip hop and R&B and, you know, there's not much rock and roll left. So that whole market, which I had in Westport and did real well, really it's about the money, Jimmy, you know? <laughs> That's why you're doing it? For the money? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I like the comedy, but I've done it so long. You know, I'm still doing things, as you know, in, in Los Angeles in mm -hmm. the film and television, mostly film business. And, um, you know, I still have a hankering to wrap it up here and kind of maybe move back to that part of the country at some point and maybe live in Palm Desert or, you know. Well, I let's still, talk about L.A. because you, know, you do go out there a lot. What are the projects there. you're involved in? What? probably been in the media here more than I'm sure anyone in the history, modern history of Kansas City. You probably have to go back to Johnny Dillinger or some, because my dad ran for mayor twice. I was running for mayor at one point before I got indicted. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's colorful and good and bad. Obviously all of our comedy stores, all the entertainment, all the big stars we brought in over the years, you know, um, people like to push into the background a lot of things you accomplish, but you know, Stanford's are being a little theater back in the uh, 80s, 90s, and beyond. We're responsible for bringing in most of the big entertainers you now see at Sprint and Midland and The Folly and even, uh, um, uh, uh, what is it, Kemper, the, uh, the, the, the museum there, all that stuff. I mean, we did that. I, we brought in uh, I, every, every big star you've seen, and some of these guys are still at the improv now, or the old Stanford's. Mm started with us, from Larry the Cable Guy to Damon Wayans. I brought in a young man in the early 90s. I couldn't give the tickets away. And I used to put him on the uh, urban channels like KPRS because he was black. And they didn't want to see him. His name was Kevin Hart. Really? I paid him $800. Little Kevin Hart. <laughs> Little Kevin who recently played... In Jumanji, right? Played Sprint and made 585000 for one night. Wow. I paid that same guy 800 bucks for a whole week. And he couldn't have thanked me enough. And he was a real nice guy. You know, I'm really good at spotting guys that are going to be big. And there mm -hmm. aren't too many. But I missed on him. I thought he was a nice guy. Very crisp. He reminded me of a real small Sinbad, who we also started. Mm -hmm. Sinbad was a doorman at Stanford's. I mean, people go, well, who's played there over the years that I would know? I go, look, everyone. It's just easier to say who hasn't. Richard Pryor never did. And... Um, Oh, God, what was the guy Saunders? Um, who was the, the other, one of my, uh, George Carlin. Never yeah. Did. That's about it. Maybe hmm. the other, you can name me. Other than that, Robin Williams played there. Jerry Seinfeld played there several times. People that we've forgotten about played. Dennis Miller. Um, the list is endless. Um, What's the big comics today that people should look out for that are going to be big, you think? Well, now that I've gotten older... Uh, Mark, I, you know, I have to confess, after staying up on it for four decades and being closely watching it so I could hire those guys, 
on the way. You try and catch them on the way up. Mm-hmm. Once they get way up there, they're not going to play comedy. Club. Right. Like I, I caught T.J. Miller on the way up, and I don't know if you know who he is. T.J. was the star of our Starlight uh, program with Amy Schumer and mm-hmm. those guys a couple of years ago at Starlight, and it sold out. T.J. just did a movie last year that grossed a billion dollars called Deadpool with Ryan yeah. Reynolds. T.J. just did last year Office Party with. Um, What's her name from the uh, TV series? Uh, from oh, I, I can't even think anymore. Jennifer Aniston was mm-hmm. the co-star. Um, now TJ's kind of goofy, has big curly hair, but you know he's one of the young hot. Now he's a movie star. He makes like twenty million a year doing liquor commercials wow. and movies. Um, he's a biggie, and um, you know you've got your urban market. The urban market, which is Latino and black, is bigger because uh, that market goes out more. You know, the white market just doesn't travel well. You know, white people tend to want to go today to see their comics that are household name people. They want to go see Amy Schumer at Sprint. Jim Gaffigan. Yeah, they want to see household names. They're not into the discovery business. And the young kids really aren't into it because they don't want to sit in a theater, a movie theater, or a comedy theater, or even Sprint or the Midland you know, and miss something on their cell phone. I mean, if you're with those guy, a young audience, you know, they're on Snapchat. If you're having sex with a girl under 30, it used to be she was watching TV when you were behind her. Now she's on Snapchat. Like, oh, look at this goose. <laughs> I mean, it's three in the morning. You're looking, but look, it got a hundred likes. I go, I don't give a damn. Put the goddamn phone down. <laughs> anyway, but, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, another guy we kind of helped discover was Cat Williams. I think a lot oh, of him yeah. was very talented. I thought more of him than I did Kevin. Kevin's just Mr. Clean Cut. Mr. Yeah, he's good. Clap it up, big smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, modern day Sinbad, who's done a lot better than Sinbad did, because Kevin arguably is the biggest, he's the most uh, highly paid comic in the world today. Really? I think he made $90 million last year with movies and wow. stand-up and television. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just a nonstop worker. All right, back to the King of Sting. What's it about, the book? It's about two guys, me being one of them. I'm the college student in, at Arizona State in the 70s and um, broke kid from a broken home and invest my last 300 bucks with a buddy of mine in a little marijuana deal, so I think. So we start off breaking the law, but eh, kind of in a small way. And, uh, you know, I needed to get a couple of pounds of Mexican weed, which was crap, to sell, we called them lids back then, ounces, to guys in my frat and around just to make enough money to pay my bills, to stay in school, get my books, pay my dorm bill, my frat bill. I didn't have any money. And um, I had a job, but at a buck sixty-five an hour, good luck. You know, I think I was sweeping and mopping a clothing store. But anyway, when I went to do the uh, deal, there were 10 other college kids, and they had amassed 10 grand. So I'm the only one that had a small amount in. We got ripped off by some low-level Mexican mob guys, we called them Prairie Pirates, and at gunpoint, and I tried to grab my money back and got the hell beat out of me. So I wanted revenge, I wanted to get my money back, and I was a big movie fan, as I saw him today, and I saw a movie called The St. Valentine's Day Massacre, based on a true story of criminals dressing up as cops to kill uh, the bad guys, because you got two guys in uniforms with a badge, you get your guns out and say, freeze your the police, as they did in that story. They gunned down like 12 guys who were all armed because the bad guys thought the other bad guys were cops. So I went, that's a hell of an idea. So I took that idea. 
and went bar hopping to find a partner, a gunslinger, a tough guy. And I found a guy in a bar who was a pool shark and who had just gotten back from Vietnam named Don Woodbeck. Unbeknownst to me, he'd worked for these same people as a smuggler, but we teamed up, Woodbeck and I, and he trained me uh, how to be, you know, a gunman, take care of myself and all the stuff he knew from being a soldier. He was a decorated, actually he was in the Navy, but he was on uh, patrol on the uh, inland with the Marines, so he'd been in combat on the ground. And um, he trained me, and we had a crew eventually of 11 guys that were mostly veterans, and we just, you know, I had studied all the police stuff, and we operated like law enforcement, like we were the Department of Public Safety or federal agents or whatever we wanted to be. And we'd go in uh, up against mostly, you know, organized crime drug dealers from the Mexican Mafia. And uh, we'd set up dope deals, me and Woodbeck, we'd be the inside like undercover detectives. And we'd be in a room with 10 of them, they were all armed, but we were, in my brain, we're the police. So when I'd open my briefcase to give them the money or whatever I was doing, we just pull out our, we had badges we bought at hawk shops, they were real badges. And we had the same, everything we did, we did that I copied from what real law enforcement did. And we'd say, police officers are under arrest. And back then they respected the badge and gun to a certain extent. Like Woodbeck said, whoever gets the gun up here, I'm pointing at your head first. You can have a machine gun down here, but it's over. Right. You're not reaching for it. So we'd win. We'd cuff them, read them their rights. How did Our, you have the balls to do that? Were you high? No, you no, that you want to be anything but high because your life's on the line. Um, no, we, we just trained. Uh, I, I'd read all the books. on. One thing I discovered in high school, because I actually was a good student, I had like two hours a day free from study hall because I'd already, by my senior year, had most of the credits I needed to graduate away from Shawnee Mission East. So I'd go to the library and I'd read books on John Dillinger, Wyatt Earp, uh, Jesse James, uh, you know, all these famous criminals and, um, and figure out what went wrong. You know, I always wanted to be a gunman, you know, a gunfighter. You know, I also read about Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, you name it. But You wanted to be a good guy gunfighter? Yeah, or a I bad thought guy? I did. Well, I wanted to be an old west gunfighter like Wyatt Earp, but it wouldn't bother me to be Doc Holliday either, yeah. you know, um, which didn't exist anymore. But, you know, I just studied it and, and, you know, modern law enforcement too. So you go up to these guys and you point a gun at their head. Well, it was more complicated. They had set up the deal. I'm not going to spend an right. hour explaining it, but. You'd set up the deal like you're really going to do, and at the last minute, just like the DEA does. Eventually, I became a real law enforcement officer. But when I first did it, I wasn't. And it's confusing as people read about it and they go, oh, oh, he got busted and they made him a, a narc. Well, that, that doesn't happen. If you get busted, you might become an informant, which is contrary to popular belief, I never was. Um, they don't put a badge on your chest. But in my case, I was so good at it, we did over 30 stings in two years. Made a lot of money, a lot of violence. People, I'm not going to go into all details, but people died, you know. There's a lot of funny. It's kind of like Butch Cassidy. You killed people? Kid. I never said that. I said there were situations where people were badly injured on both sides of the fence. I never said I did. Oh, okay. My partner was shot and killed in the end. Really? What was his name? Don Woodbeck. Woodbeck. It's in the book. Weren't you afraid of dying? Was I afraid? Yeah, but the more successful we got, and we, and we did stings all over the country, not just in Arizona. I flew to Boston, Los Angeles, Las Vegas. I mean, and I stayed in school. 
I was a student. So how old were you when this happened? I started out at 18 and I left the business just at 20 and came home to go to the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I was uh, uh, confronted uh, by uh, the Attorney General's office by agents he sent down. He knew who I was because he got a, Vern Miller was the Attorney General. He was running for governor. He got a dossier about all the stuff I just told you. And he wanted to meet me to see if I was interested in going to work for the government and being an agent to train their agents because they were a bunch of nerds. And they thought if they had some, I was kind of like Frank Serpico. And they thought if we had a guy like that, you know, they just, look, none of it's about protecting the public. Law enforcement's a business. It's a business that's a financial business. You know, it's just like any other business. They're out there to, to fund themselves, their equipment, their lives. And I became part of that. You know, there's so some, they hired you. They hired me to be to, special agent. You were already doing these stings. I quit and I was a student. And then they said, hey, come back and do it for us. I said, do it for us. And I went, I thought they were kidding. I'm like, you're going to give me a real badge? Did they, uh, they obviously paid you, right? Yeah, that's like giving Dillinger the keys to Fort Knox. You're going to trust me? I couldn't believe it. But why would you work for them? I I assume you made a lot of money in these steam operations. So why would you give up that? Well, go I gave it up because there was kind of, I didn't want to get killed. He just said, "Was I afraid of dying?" Yeah, the, so you the were Mexicans afraid of dying. were going to kill me. You know? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I don't have, you know, you got to read the book, The King of Sting. Get it at Barnes and Noble, or online, <laughs> and Amazon. Um, and now it's being made into a movie, finally. But um, I look, I missed the life. I didn't want to be a student, and they offered me a degree at the University of Kansas just for being, you know, without me really going. And I thought, wow, I knew my life would be a book or a movie. I went, this is a great way to end the movie. I went from being an outlaw to a cop. Who does that? I went, this is going to be fantastic. So the federal government hired Craig Glazer mm-hmm. to be a sting operator. No, take no, no. Part. My, my, my job was, was your special agent. Special agent. It's like an FBI agent. Okay. And they gave me no training, just cut me loose. I, I trained with a couple other undercover guys. You didn't go to Quantico? I didn't go. No, I wasn't a federal. I was a state State, agent. okay. I was put on loan to the feds later and worked with the DEA, but initially I was an attorney general's agent. You've heard of the KBI. Yeah. They don't care. Well, now maybe they do. Then they, they were investigators. They were not undercover. They'd go to the scene of a crime, not just drugs, but mm-hmm. me neither. I worked on other cases too. But KBI would do the, uh, they were like uh, CSI. And they would do all the uh, the paperwork and the uh, the chemical, you yeah, know, all that. My job, we were the gun carrying undercover, you know, the dirty birds that would go in there and actually make the arrests and set up the. So how did that end? It ended in nineteen, I think it was seventy four, when I got the attorney general and the governor bring my partner Don Woodbeck, who wasn't dead yet, up from prison in Yuma to be my partner. So it was like Wyatt Earp, I was Wyatt, and he was Doc Holliday. And I said, look, these other agents aren't on my level. I need a guy, if you want me to really get things done, that I worked with before that knows what he's doing. And they agreed to bring what, they wanted the headlines. They wanted big case, they wanted big coke and heroin cases, not marijuana. Why? So my boss was running for governor. Ah. They wanted to win. So then he did the The trade was, if you get me, help me do this, now that you get your degree, my pay was mental. I think it was making fifteen hundred a month. But you get buy money. The government supplied me with buy money. Oh, you're going to be a biker. I guess you need a new Harley. Mm-hmm. I guess you need a better apartment. You need some better clothes. 
Oh, just go buy it with the buy money and give us the receipt. Like how much money are you talking about? Well, the more the more cases you made, the more buy money you got. Since I was overnight the top agent, you know, I could go in there and get five or ten grand a week. You know, to go. Uh, Which was a lot of money back then. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of money now. Yeah, it was a real lot of money in the seventies. So. Yeah, I was flying high. I mean, it wasn't the kind of money I made in Arizona. But so you got this guy up from prison I got to him be out your of partner. Jail. He couldn't believe it. He went, this is a joke. Who? He goes, you've got a real badge? And I went, he went, are they insane? Well, he just, he had larceny in his heart. He went, man, think of the money we can make. Now we're really, I went, no, I'm a cop. You're my confidential informant. You're not a cop. But they let him carry a gun, and there was a promise that they kept his nose clean that he would eventually become an agent. He was in jail for bribing a border patrol guy to bring money across the border. It wasn't a, that big a deal. But um, he set up a sting that went wrong. He was supposed to provide me some big drug dealers and it fell through. So he maneuvered the drugs into the area for me to arrest. And he sent two runners and they weren't really the drug dealers. The, the, the case we made or I made was totally legit. But at that time it's called a reverse sting where I pretended to be uh, selling drugs, not buying, which they do all the time now, but they hadn't done that back then. So I reversed the situation, and um, they said I was trying to frame these two runners, which I wasn't. They brought the drugs over, and we arrested them, me and other agents, in some hotel out in Merriam, Kansas. But we were surrounded by AG officers, federal officers on my team, but I couldn't see what was going on outside. And my partner set it up improperly so I had to eat it. I got arrested and fired for improprieties. And so was Woodbeck and everybody testified. They arrested you for what? Well, the charge became conspiracy to deliver the drugs because I took place in an illegal plan. I wasn't selling the drugs, I was arresting them. But that sounded worse. So the Republican, I worked for the Democratic side, set it up for um, the Attorney General's office and the then District Attorney Margaret Jordan. We're going into deep detail on That's all right. I want to hear this. So uh, so this turned political, and, oh, the, yeah. and the Republicans wanted Well, they to, wanted to get rid of Vern Miller, who was going to win the uh, governorship, and they did. That case ruined him because they, you know, it painted him dirty, and I was the dirty cop, and I had to live with that. So then you had a, a record. Yeah, I didn't go to jail. The, the court saw through it. They knew I was a political football. I was only 21. They went, how can you made him an agent? You can't be an agent when you're 20. You have to be 21 to carry a weapon and, and do all that. But they backdated all the records, and everyone broke rules on both sides. And I was just kind of. What did your parents? I, I think wanted. Of I all just. This? I just wanted to be a hero. I just wanted to be a, a, a real life movie star, minus the movie. Well, they were appalled. I mean, you know, nobody liked it. They were going, oh, "This is a great life you've chosen." And um, well, I was mad because I thought I was going to become the head of this big legal process and be the youngest special agent and run the world and all the stuff I thought I was going to do and that it would become a book and a movie and this would be a great ending to it. I never planned on being arrested. So uh, I took the story and you know right after that we opened Stanford's in Westport, my dad and I. And uh, yeah everybody knew it was front page. Back in those days we had two newspapers, the Star mm -hmm. and the Kansas City uh, Times, Times which is the morning I was front page news for months and months and months. All my hearings were on the front page or, you know, it was kind of like the OJ case, but local. So why has it taken 40 years to get this book done? Well, I didn't choose to write the book till 2008. 
because uh, I sold my life story on a pitch, like I'm doing with you right yeah. now, in 1982, and I moved to Los Angeles. How much? Um, I got like 300 grand of really? CBS. We, and what we did they all, do with it? Well, they were gonna make, they had a movie division. It was gonna be a movie, but then they went bankrupt. They did five movies, not mine. So they, what'd you do with 300 grand? I lived on it. You know, I got yeah. an acting class. And, you know, lived in Hollywood and thought I was going to be a movie star. And we talked about girls. I spent way too much time chasing girls and partying with movie. You know, I hung out with Mickey Roar, Gary right. Busey, guys like Sonny Lanham from 48 Hours who became my best So you friend. blew it. You blew 300000 well, I didn't blow it. I, I mean, people, I didn't blow it. Well, Woodbeck got half of it. We, you did not invest it, Craig. Come on. I didn't. Well, I, I needed money to pay my rent and my car. And it wasn't like I was living that high. I just... I thought the movie would get made, and I'd get all my money from right. that and be a movie star. But so now, the King of Sting, your true story. Well, I did other eventually. Right. As you know, I did the Muhammad Ali story. I did other movies. But, but this could actually be a movie. I mean, we could see is. this on the big screen, right? You will. Yeah, it's a movie now. Who's who's doing it? Uh, Division of Disney, or today, so kind, you know, because the movie is so effed up. Most money in movies today comes from Europe. The big investors of or China, today. right? Well, the movie-going audience doesn't live here. Americans really don't go to movies anymore. In comparison to... Yeah, they go 10 to 1. Example, 007, Daniel Craig. His second movie, I don't remember the name of it, um, because he Skyfall? Or that was uh, whatever. Anyway. Anyway. He did a movie called uh, The Lady with the Dragon Tattoo, Mm -hmm. which was a monster hit in Europe. So being an Englishman, he was a huge star in Europe. So they fell... I mean, 007 was already big. But when he did 007 and they knew, oh, that's the guy from that movie, it did one billion. That one movie did more than all the 07s put together. Wow. All from Europe. And conversely, it did uh, 800 million in Europe and 175 million in America. We just don't, you know, Americans just, we don't go out that much. We stay home and watch football and baseball and go to Buffalo Wild Wings with our kids and we try and be home and in bed by nine. Hey, if I didn't own a nightclub, that's what I would do. It's too cold out. But that's what we do. So Europe, and you said Asia, they find they're the money arm of, there wouldn't be a movie business without them because we, if you look at movies, the ones that do well, that's why they do these Marvel comic things. Like mm-hmm. the guy they're trying to get to play Woodbeck now, they've already made him a $10 million offer, is um, he's Thor, what's his name, um, uh, Helmsworth. Oh yeah, yeah. real good looking guy, he plays yeah, he Thor, would, yeah. yeah. And he gets $25 million for those. So he's going to play your partner? He's been offered the part to play Woodbeck. They offered my part. I'm a young guy. In the movie, whoever plays me has to be in college. So who's that going to be? Uh, they offered it to Dylan O'Brien, and he didn't want it. He thought I was too... I guess he's a real Christian. I don't really know. but He thought you were too corrupt? He didn't want to be associated with his Craig dad. Razor. At first they loved it, and they went... <laughs> I go, well, it's not a story about well, it's a book. acting. It's a yeah, it's an outlaw. We tell, you know, you knew that going with in. a kind heart. Yeah, I mean, it's a great script. Who just wanted to be a gunslinger? Yeah, and yeah. had no ill will, right? Well, there's plenty. Of it. We'll, yeah, we'll get another young guy like they're, they're going to talk to Tom Holland. That's Spider Man, and yeah, they're big stars. I, the movie's the star. I'd like to just go out and get like Joaquin Phoenix to play Woodback for two million, and Cash Craig is some young. You know, God, that's done a lot of stuff. But maybe so. What's the budget on this film? We raised thirty-two million, but I, we could do it for twelve. It's going to look the same. Most of that money goes to the producers, which I'm one, and the director, and the screenwriters, and the actors. So if you have um, 
Thor, if you have uh, Hemsworth. Hemsworth or guys like that, you know, you're going to have 15 million or, or more in the two leading men. We haven't even hired the other. Will actors. you shoot it here in Kansas City? No, no, it'll be, it's already set up. We shot mostly in Los Angeles, a little bit in Arizona where much of it took place, New Mexico. It's so complicated making movies now. We have to shoot one week in Canada to get the tax benefits. Right. We have to shoot the biggest financing arm of this is from Europe, a place called Silver Reels. They do a lot of movies. And I met the CEO, we, we hung out in LA, he's a great guy, Giro. And uh, they're gonna, they put in 19 million. And of course, their job is to get actors that would mean something in, in Europe and not here as much. And Helmsworth's one of those guys. So it, it, they don't hire necessarily the best quality actor, it's who's got- The big know, draw. Yeah, can we get The Rock? Because everybody mm -hmm. wants to see him, even though he's not a great well, actor. You don't look much like The Rock. No, he wouldn't play me. My, my, guy's the, my guy's the young guy. My guy's the young guy. I'll is, be in it. Is I'll, he going to have play. your voice? How did you get your voice? This gravelly... Just born with it. Smoking, drinking. Did you, as a young kid, though, did you go in and my put a gun to somebody's head and say, hey, Craig no, Glazer I, I watched my interviews when I did the Ali movie and stuff back in the 90s when I was younger, and my voice was deep and not this deep. You know, Smoke, you know late nights, you know. Yeah. Uh, so this is really going to be a movie. I mean, this is going to happen. It better be after. <laughs> it's the longest development deal in Hollywood history uh, where someone, you know, I mean, who would stick with a movie project their whole life like that? 40 I, years. Yeah. I, well, I started out, I sold it in 82. Wow. Well, you're, how many years is that? Is that 40? Uh, uh, 30, geez, 36. Know. Yeah. Almost that's, 40. That's the, yeah. There's no movie about someone where that person's been pursuing it. I've been at every studio. I mean, I was at uh, Universal twice with the deal. Uh, I've been with some of the biggest, I was with Clint Eastwood four years ago as a producer. Why haven't they done this? It's just now? political. I mean, yeah, it's the biggest question. It's such a great story. We had, we had great writers. I mean, we've rooted in the script with 10 different million dollar writers. Nick Kazan, Ily Kazan's son wrote the first script for CBS and that script went over to uh, Paramount, and we were going to do it there, and then that fell apart. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing back then. I do now, but I was learning the business. I kind of came in backwards. You know, I was out there to be a celebrity, not be a filmmaker, producer, writer, and um, it was a tough lesson. And I didn't put my nose to the grindstone the way I should have. And I also wish now that I'd graduate from college, you know, with an English degree, and be and was more able to write myself and not have a partner to write with me because it was my it was kind of like when Stallone wrote Rocky it was my story and I wrote it but I wasn't a good enough technical writer mm -hmm. so I always had to work with Kazan. did you ever get your degree that they promised you from the drug scene? no I didn't because I was indicted no oh. I was taken away I oh. did get a degree in prison yes when I went to prison years later for what were you in prison for uh money uh money laundering and mm. the, uh, another sting I did in Hollywood so you're in another sting that you yeah, actually went to prison later, for. Yeah. yeah, tell me about that. What oh, happened? God, we'll be here all day. Well, short, give me a short story. I was a movie executive at New World Pictures. All these stories I'm telling you were front page stories over the years in the LA Times and New York Times. And I had them on my wall because I was an egomaniac. And one of the young guys, about my age actually, was older than me, that worked for me at New World. I was vice president of the music division. My job was to go out in Hollywood and hire bands like uh, L.A. Guns or Roses or, uh, uh, I mean, uh, um, Guns and Roses. Guns and Roses, but they mm -hmm. weren't Guns and Roses yet. 
and I would Axl Rose. Yeah. And then there were LA Guns, and then I go to the Troubadour, or the Roxy, or um, Whiskey, and these young bands coming up wanted to be their music to be played somewhere. So we were, you know, I worked for Roger Corman. We did a lot of B movies. So I'd go out. It was my job. I'd wear a long black leather jacket and had long hair. I just looked like a, a rocker. And I'd come into the clubs anyway, and they just throw their tapes at me. And I'd pay a thousand dollars a song, and maybe we'd use. 20 seconds of it, a snippet, you know, in a car scene or in a bar scene. And they all wanted to get that credit. So I hired a lot of up and coming bands to get their music into film. And um, that was my job. So um, my assistant, Ed Laffian, who is uh, Armenian, unbeknownst to me, had been arrested and convicted in San Francisco for money laundering, something I knew nothing about. And he posed, he said, look, come here. How would you like to make get your hands on five million bucks? Because you know, I was trying to make the name of the movie back then wasn't The King of Sting. It was called Outlaws. Mm-hmm. That was the, the project. It's the same story. And you wanted to fund that project. So I you wanted said, to fund it myself because I had enough connections to make it uh, then. And um, I was with uh, I, I was always with big people. I was with uh, the guy that did Armageddon. Um, uh, that writer, and uh, but, I was a producer named uh, Chuck Robin, who did Batman, mm. the, the Batman series. So this Armenian guy said, how would you like to make $5 million? And you said, so sure. I've got guys that want to launder money, and they want to get in with organized crime, and I've read all these things about it. He goes, I'll bet you know guys like that. I did didn't, you? I didn't. Yeah, but I wasn't in any. You know, I was in the movie. I was out of that. Did you know of people back here in Kansas City? I did. So those are the names I used. I had to come up with Savellas. Yeah, I used all those names when I started doing the setup. For, I just wanted to rob them. You know? Right. I just figured, you know, I was crazy. I'll take their money. I'll and... just take their money. God. Wasn't that so, a death wish, though? It was really stupid, because had they really been a Colombian mob, they'd have killed me eventually. So I hired actors to play the Savellas and Comasinos and all those people's names I knew. And I introduced them to all these 40, 50 year old men who were not mafia. They were paid by me, actors. Did they know them. what you were doing? Sure. No, the Colombians didn't. My guys did. <laughs> they just wanted to get paid to act. And they, this was out in LA. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they'd go to meetings with me, you know, Ferentino, whatever names I had them be. Well, I thought we were, you know, hoodwinking Colombians. The Colombians had front guys that were American too. So I had a, I worked with their front crew. And I was just a kid. I was 28 years old. And they just thought I was introducing all these. They had no idea I was running this thing. And they began to give me 100 grand a week to launder in this pretty clever operation where we had Olympic record cards. I found a guy in my crew that was an actor who had been a uh, guy that during the Olympics in L.A. in 82, I think it was, he had purchased hundreds of thousands of these Records they were going to sell door to door. Jesse Owens breaks or whatever. Right, the, right. And they were going door to door with the heat of the Olympics selling them, and it was a total failure. And he had thousands of these records left, and he went broke doing it. I go, I got an idea. We'll launder the money that way. We'll rent office space in Long, office space in Long Beach, which was cheaper in L.A. We'll get a secretary. We're not really going to do anything. And I'll convince these Colombian schmucks that we're laundering the money through Las Vegas through this company and that we're going door to door selling his records and we can say we sold whatever we want then here's their profit and the money's laundered. I never, you know, I learned about money laundering in Newsweek magazine. I went to the library and I didn't even know how much to charge or anything. 
I'd never done that. But I convinced them, and then the actors did a great job. I had the Sparrows, every name you've heard in Kansas City. <laughs> of course, none of them were real. They were all actors. Right. Well, uh, we set this thing up for a year. And at the end of the road, I was going to get, you know, the rest of the money. And I was, they were giving me like a hundred grand, not every week, but almost every week. I mean, it got so ridiculous that I'd leave my condo in Brentwood and the money guys would drop off a bag of money in a brown paper sack to my maid. And she didn't know what it was. And they, I go, you idiots, you're giving a hundred thousand dollars to it. How do you know she's just going to go out the back door with you morons? They went, oh, we thought she was. She's a maid. You know, you give somebody a hundred grand. So, uh, so how much total did you? But get? I was only supposed to get five grand out of each yeah. delivery. But really, I was the one laundering it, even though I wasn't. So I was getting like uh, seventeen grand, and that's how I financed the operation. I'd take like ten of it and use the other seven to pay the actors. I hired. I even hired private. How did it end? So you you've we got this, all this we money. Did, we did this for a year. I was making a lot of money, not millions, because I only got a small percentage. And oh God, we did so many extravagant things. The the other guys started to get suspicious, and then when you know these guys were like, you know, organized crime, they go, "Look, you're connected in Vegas. We want to go to Vegas and see the operation there because we're giving you a lot of money, and we don't want to just be, you know, we want to be protected by organized crime in America, not by some independent guys, and we don't know that you're really hooked up the way you say you are, which I wasn't." So I flew ahead of them to Vegas, rented two suites, walked through uh, Caesar's Palace, went up to all the cute cocktail waitresses and staff, went, look, here's $100. When I walk through this casino tonight, see this man with me, go, good evening, Mr. Farino, good evening, sir, to me, don't say my name, and good evening, Mr. Comasino, to that guy. And Make like you're a big shot. Wherever yeah. I go through here, so it's yes, sir, no, sir, and is there anything we can do for you, and then... You know, I'd go in the restaurant prepay so everything looked like it was on the house when it wasn't. And what was in it for them? I say, for everything I'm giving you now to pay for it, I'm going to give you that much again after you do it for you to keep. And they go, what do they care? They go, okay. Cocktail, which one? You're going to give me another hundred? Fine. Sure. I'll say hello to anybody you want me to. So they all did it. It looked great. But they still, you know, uh, my dad was opening a Stanford's in St. Louis, Missouri. And I brought the Colombian front guys up there to see that because there was a lot of Italian guys there, just guys in the restaurant business. And there was no real mafia going on, but it looked like it. And his partner owned a hotel there so I could make that look mafia and, and real sinister, which I did. We had meetings there and everybody ran around like I was the Prince of Darkness. And it was like the Godfather, but I went, boy, this is impressive because I was trying to get him to cut loose several million more dollars and I just wanted to nail them and get out and the detectives I hired who were Englishmen came to me there in St. Louis they went look Craig look we like you you paid us a lot of money we've been following these Colombians and the white guys that work for them and their license plates are not registered anywhere and I go yeah they go that means one of two things they're either law Cops. enforcement or high level organized crime that can pull this off Either way, you're fucking dead. Because if they are real Colombians and at that level and syndicate, once you rip them off, they're not going to let it go if you take millions of dollars. They're big cocaine dealers that bring in tons of cocaine. You know, you may move back to Kansas City or New York or Paris. It could be three years from now. You're going to be walking across the street with your wife and kids. Boom, boom, boom. You're dead. 
They go, you need to get out now while you can. And I was so greedy for the money, so addicted to the life. And one thing that happens to you when you live a life like I did and everyone around you dies or goes to jail and you don't, you start thinking you're omnipotent. You begin to have a mm. God complex. You see this in sports, like, and I'm a big Tom Brady fan, and I love Tom, but I totally get where he is mentally. He's unbeatable in his brain. So it was, I did the Ali movie, and Ali and I talked about it. He had that. Hmm. He goes, you get a God complex. You don't mean any harm. You don't mean to hurt anyone. You so much believe in yourself and the confidence, and you just go, if I haven't died by now, if I haven't been beaten by now, nobody can beat me. Nobody. And you believe it. And you need that belief to keep going. But guess what? What? Someone can beat you. You will lose eventually. And they were cops. They were. They were the Pacific Task Force of the FBI. They must have laughed when you told them these were the crime families of Kansas City. And they knew all along. They didn't laugh. Well, I mean, they were, I'm sure, when they were by themselves, they were like, this jackass. They didn't know it until they arrested me. They didn't know it was a sting. And uh, I went to meet them. They were tra- they were trying to get rid of like several hundred kilos of coke. I'd never done a dope deal with them. There was no more cocaine in the deal than you see on this table. None. I never did any. I never saw them with any. It was just all conversation. I just assumed that's where they got their money, and I didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. I was just robbing them. So uh, we met in a restaurant, straight and everything out, because they kept, you know, we had bigger arguments. I'd seen them when they were fed, so I got to see the videotape before my trial, and it's actually pretty funny, all the acting and what they were doing. Yeah, they believed we were definitely criminals at some level, they just didn't know what. What ruined it, my partner had been murdered a year or so before that, and uh, I was testifying in the case, and there was a story in the Orange County newspaper with my picture, Hmm. it said Sting Artist, a key witness in a murder trial, and one of the IRS agents saw it. They went, holy shit. This guy's an ex-cop. It's it's a sting. There's something wrong here. This guy's testifying. He's not who he says he is. And they just shit. So they set up a meeting at a... Uh, and this The picture of this arrest was on the front page of the... Um, oh, what was the... It's like we have the pitch and they have the reader from mm-hmm. Los Angeles. And I've been the cover on that magazine or newspaper several times dressed, and I've got pictures of it, as Wyatt Earp and Woodbeck Doc Holliday. Mm-hmm. And... And when he died, it was the last thing. Um, and that was covering New York Times. You know, we got a lot of... So... You know, had, had this been a different era, I would have been... John so Dillinger. they busted you. You went to prison I, for how long? I I went to prison. I got seven years, went to trial, and, and did four and a half years. Did you plead? Was that a plea? No, I went to trial. You went to trial. My okay. defense was I was like Dirty Harry, and the guilty people were the... Remember, I go, remember, mm-hmm. I believe they were criminals. If I did anything wrong, I was robbing criminals and that doesn't carry a very big sentence. so you played yourself off as a hero right it was called the uh, the hero defense my lawyer played it <laughs> off as he's a vigilante was this federal or state federal he's dirty wow. Harry. and we had him. the jury was buying it and they knew they were losing and um, you know they only indicted me the actors none of them were the the feds didn't want to hear the truth they didn't want the world to hear how stupid they were that they bought they spent millions trying to indict the mafia which they did you've seen the movie casino Mm -hmm. this was that era right they did bust the mafia yeah same era 84 so i was part of that but i wasn't really part of it so my crew the feds on mine from the rsfpi pacific task force 
they all got uh, demoted for wasting the government money and time, so they hated my guts. Wow. They wanted me to. Is do this it. in the book, or is yeah. this? No, it's okay. in the book. That's all part of it. Well, it's long. You know, the most of the book's about the stings in Arizona, my right. law enforcement, and then it ends with me going to prison and getting out and getting into comedy. That's kind of an upending, getting huh. married. Um, that whole thing, and um, you know, there's pictures in here. Um, well, so we'll, we'll look at those. So I, I went to prison. Yeah. I did four and a half years. What oh, was yeah, that like? Well, it wasn't fun. I don't want to talk forever about prison. I could write a book about that. I only did a couple chapters on it. Cause you only have so many pages right. you're allowed to write. So I wanted to focus. What was the worst on part of prison for you? The beginning and the fear. You know, seeing the walls and it looks like you know I was a movie buff and a book buff and. A, well, God damn, this looks like Alcatraz. I was at Terminal mm. Island Federal Prison in Long Beach, California. And I, I still remember that night. They brought me in at night, you know, just like you saw in the movie mm -hmm. Shawshank. Shawshank, yeah. I'm carrying the clothes. They sprayed me down. They, all that's real. And I went, fuck, this is real. These fuckers think I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do this time. I kept thinking any minutes. I was walking down and go, we're just kidding. You right. can go now. I just didn't believe it. I went, I'm going to do seven years? And... Uh, they took me to a cell uh, with one guy in it, and naturally he was a giant black guy that was like 6'4 and 280, and this is good. And I'm in the bunk. I didn't want to make any noise, thought he'd kill me. And I was a pretty tough guy, but I'm going, you know, wait till they find out I'm an ex-cop and I rob drug dealers. I'm gonna be the biggest, most hated mm. guy in this joint because they're all drug dealers and they don't like cops. They sure don't like people that rob drug dealers. And it was on the news every day. They all, you know, John DeLorean was there. That was the area. Really? You know, people forget he was in jail for quite a while going through trial. He won. Yeah. But he was in prison that way. They didn't let him out. So what did you learn out of all that, Craig? Don't, I mean, get, don't do that again. Um, it really was, when I went to jail, I was uh, 29, almost 30. And I ended up, the good news after a couple of years of regular prison I worked my way, you know, I behaved. At first, you have to decide, are you gonna be a tough guy? Are you gonna get in a gang? Are you gonna deal drugs? Are you gonna gamble? Are you gonna, you know, I ran with the, the smallest group of people in prison, which were the businessmen. And I made a lot of good friends, guys that were there for tax evasion, rich men, um, some organized crime guys. But, you know, at night we just play poker. And if you lose your wife, and I didn't have a wife, or your mother or girlfriend would mail the money you owed that Jimmy mm -hmm. to Jimmy. You just tell them where to send it. And if they owed you money, it'd go to your people and then it'd go on my books so I could buy candy bars and tennis rackets or whatever the fuck I was buying. And that's what I did. And then uh, I graduated college. With a degree in what? BA. I went mm -hmm. to, uh, you have to go to the prison of their gotcha. uh, the college that's available in the prison. And it was this was the beginning of going to uh, college online computers, mm -hmm. which I wasn't very good at. But I ended up getting like a, a, a high B average. I was the only guy to graduate at the prison I was at when I graduated, which was Boron. I ended up going to the Watergate. In the end, Senator Dole, who battled hard for me, kept writing Chevy Chase Merrill going, look, I put this guy's Eagle, I was an Eagle Scout. He goes, I put this kid's Eagle badge on him. You know, in our town, he's Jesse James. We don't see him as this big criminal. He's more of a, an outlaw, more of a folktale, you know. You know, the guys he always hurt were bad guys, so we don't see him as a horrible person. You know, I want you to get off his back. And Dole, who was running for, was he president or vice, he was vice mm -hmm. presidential candidate with, with, was he with Reagan? I can't remember, Bush. 
no, in Reagan. the 80s or 90s? This was the 80s. Who was yeah. he with? I guess Reagan. He asked that I be transferred to a camp. And without him, I never would have been because though I didn't, I didn't have a big sentence like most guys. In, I was in Lompoc Penitentiary. That was real bad. I mean, they're all gangbangers. And, hmm. you know, I have so many stories. Yeah, they wanted to kill me, you know, but... I got with some Israeli soldiers and they protected me. They were in there for murder. That's a whole other story. So I got with that crew. But what did I learn from it? Yeah, what did you learn from all the that? The best way I can put it is I was sitting in Safford, Arizona. I went to like four different prisons. They move you around in the feds. In the state, they don't. You stay wherever you're at. But in the feds, they like to move you to keep breaking you down, breaking you down. But I eventually got to go to a camp with no walls. It wasn't that bad. By the time I got there, I'd been down two and a half years. I was built like a little Arnold Schwarzenegger. I weightlifted every day. I could bench over 300 pounds. I weighed 165. Nobody wanted to fuck with me. Well, look at that guy. Don't work with him. Mm. I was the bad guy. Um, a guy came up to me on the yard. He went, are you Glazier? And I went, yeah. He goes, I hear you're bitching about your sentence. He goes, I seen you on TV. I go, yeah, what's your point? He goes, how much time are you doing? I go, I got seven years. He goes, big deal. Winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, and you're out. He goes, let me ask you, you don't think you deserve to be here, do you? And I went, no. He goes, Glazier, this money laundering thing. I get it. You didn't really do what they said you did. And I went, yeah. And you think it's wrong that you're here, right? And I went, that's right. He goes, what else did you do? I go, what? He goes, did you, you didn't get caught for He goes, didn't yeah. you at gunpoint rob drug dealers? I went, yeah. He goes, no buts, at gunpoint. Were you really a cop then? I went, no. He goes, do you think that's okay? Hmm. I went, well, and he goes, what else did you do? And he went on and on. He goes, my point is this. You're doing a small fraction of the time you could be doing. You get it? So quit bitching, quit hmm. crying. They're doing you a favor, kid, because when you get out, you'll be in your mid-30s. You'll still be a relatively young man, which is what the judge said. You'll be relatively young when you get out. And he goes, you get to start your life again. You're Jesus Christ. You're dead in here. Hmm. The world's out there, and you're in hell or heaven. You decide. But you're getting out, and you get to start again. And most of the fuckers in here aren't. Or when they do, they got nothing to go out to. You do. You got a big brain. Use it properly this time. You got a lot going for you. I'm just here as a messenger to tell you, make your life mean something. Do something good. You already did all this crap. You need to cut it out. This is a message to stop. You're lucky you're not dead. Got it? You walked away. Mm -hmm. and went, you know what? And I kind of got a term. I went, that guy's right. I do deserve. Finally, I went, you know what? I got what I deserved. I have been a criminal. I do deserve to be here. And that guy's right. And I just got to get out and start over. And I did. Mm. So is this book and the movie kind of... Uh, Does it say that? Well, is it... In the end. Not a justification for it, but is it your way of making up for it, giving something back to people that maybe they can learn from? I, just, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's a great action-adventure story that's scary and funny. I think it's uh, about a road less traveled by, you know, you know me personally, and a lot of people in Kansas City think they do, and some do and don't, but I was just kind of a regular guy. It's like, who would go out and do all this? Like you said, you know, to meet me back then when I was doing it in a classroom or socially, you would never think this guy would, would be in that life. Mm. And it was a way to kind of find the American West again that we, you know, we grew up believing in, you know, gunfighters and sheriffs and, and outlaws and all that rolled into one there's no real lesson learned like oh this was bad or this was good 
you know, do I regret the things I did to the, the guys I took down? No, not really. I don't have any sleepless nights over it. I'm sorry people around me died. I didn't kill, you know, it wasn't because of me. I didn't like seeing my best friend Woodbeck get killed. But it's, it, yeah, it's a lot of life lessons. But in the end, you have to be true to yourself. And my life, you know, what I really want to do is be a corporate speaker now when the movie guy should have done it when the book came out and just speak to students, which I have for free, but make a career of doing that. And, you know, explain that you can't win. You know, I'm as, I think I'm as good as it gets. You know, there's Jack Nicholson on the wall back there, a picture of him that Jack signed for me. He and I gave a speech at San Diego for Screen Actors Guild. He and I were the only ones. I went, what are you doing here? He goes, what are you doing here? And I went, well, I'm talking to all the... And he got him. He goes, all you guys want to be actors? And I went, yeah. He goes, what the fuck are you doing in San Diego? LA's that way. That's my speech. And I go, well, I got to follow that guy. He's never done anything. <laughs> and we had a great time. I thought we were buddies. And I saw him at a party three years later. And he had no idea who I was. But so are you still untouchable? Nobody is. Point of the story in life is nobody is invulnerable. Not Tom Brady, uh, not the man I did the movie on who I love, Muhammad Ali. You know, we're all just human. We're all fallible. You know, you've read the true story on John Kennedy and Martin Luther King. You know, John did drugs and ran with hoodlums and she did not. You know, you know, John is built up to be something he wasn't. He wasn't Lancelot. He really he wasn't much different than uh, Donald Trump, really. But he's pictured one way and Trump another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of us have our good and bad qualities in life. And in the end, I think it kind of evens out. I'm lucky. You know, when you're a little kid and someone says, what do you want to be? Well, I said, well, I want to be a playboy photographer and a policeman and an outlaw and a sheriff and a, and a fireman and, and be in the movies. And I got to do all that. Who gets to do all this shit? Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, one of my best friends today is um, Michael Tabman, who's an author and a speaker, former head of the FBI in Kansas City, who indicted me here hmm. on a thing I shouldn't have been, you know, that I was the head of all this organized crime crap when I wasn't. But, um, and we're good buddies and we talk about it. I hope we'll finally get the movie made now. And, you know, that's my Super Bowl. I lived my whole life to live the life and then tell the story. So I, I did a documentary for Europe when I was in L.A. in July at MGM about what I'm telling you. Of course, they had me on a set, and it was 100 degrees, and I was there 10 hours telling the story over and over again. But, you know, it's a great story, and it's got a lot. You know, I didn't do any of the, the comedy that's in it, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of humor. Well, I can't wait to see it here in a theater someday, yeah. The King of Sting. The King, you can get the book now on Amazon.com or uh, at bookstores mm -hmm. internationally. It's a hardcover or uh, soft. And on what is the other thing you can buy now when you just listen to it? What's it called? Podcast. No, no. <laughs> you can buy the, uh, God, I can't remember the name of it, where you can just listen to it in your car. Yeah. Well, thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. Good well, being Hey, I always want to thank you. You've had me on Box Force guest a million yeah. times. You've always been very nice, and everyone there has always been nice. And the media in Kansas City, and I've always wanted to thank them. Because in my 40 years of media here, not once has anyone said, and here we have ex-con. <laughs> not once. So they've well, always been very nice. Next time I'll introduce you that way.